I was reading this last week that uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a hero of mine, a pastor in London for much of the 20th century, um, that he was adamantly opposed to ever getting up in the pulpit and welcoming people because he said when you get in the pulpit, you have to make it very clear to people that you are there speaking the Word of God and not simply having a family gathering. And I resonated very much with this statement, and so I want at this point to welcome all of you here to church. Um, So why am I doing the very thing he says not to do? Well, um, because I want to explain to you that uh, we all have different duties and responsibilities. And in behalf of this church, I know some of you are, are visitors, and I just want to make it very clear to you that we do welcome you, but this is not our home. This is the body of Christ. And I have the privilege of, as soon as I get done welcoming you, preaching the Word of God to you. And that's an office. It's not, uh, it's not a personal thing at all, but God has appointed me and set me apart through the laying on of hands to do this job for you. But I do want to welcome you and tell you that uh, this is the place to be on the Lord's Day. Um, God has been pleased to give us His Word, and it's written in a book. And we come because it tells us to gather. It says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, as some are in the habit of doing. It tells us what to do when we gather. It tells us to proclaim this Word. And that's not just sharing this Word, but it's preaching it. It's, it's hammering it into our hearts because... All of us are foolish and sinful, and it needs to be hammered. In fact, Scripture refers to us itself as uh, a hammer, uh, as a fire. It's a living and active book that's able to pierce us to the deepest points. The other thing I want to say, though, in, in, in my role as sort of a father to the flock, I want to say to those of you that didn't come on the retreat what I say every year or try to, which is you missed it. Um... And yesterday I was talking to a man who hadn't wanted to come, but then came at the last moment. And I looked at him and I said, don't you realize I didn't want to go? You know, do people really think I want to go on men's retreats? As a matter of fact, all of you men who were excited to go on the retreat, and there are some of you, raise your hand. Okay, there were some of you. Now, those of you that were not excited, but went as a discipline, raise your hand. Okay, there you have it. So, listen, guys, you might think I'm pulling my punches this morning when I make an application that's going to be painful to those of you that weren't at the retreat, but it's because I love you. We do things as men that we don't want to do. Now, some of you didn't come because you were afraid you might have to talk to people, and we didn't do that. (laughs) Others of you are afraid because you think maybe we cried. And that's the women's retreat. (laughs) We didn't do that. We burped and we played Frisbee. So if you think you can handle burping and Frisbee, come next year. Okay? Especially those of you who are... Well, never mind. Okay. Um, It was a wonderful retreat. There were about 70 of us. Um... We were with uh, my brother David's uh, church up um, in Fort Wayne, and uh, Bob Forney from their church and Stephen Baker brought us the teaching of the Word. It was a beautiful balance, and 
those of us who went as a discipline came home filled with joy that we had been there. And that's always true. If, I, I always used to, when I, was in, when I was in Wisconsin, I had constant, constant nursing home people in my church and people dying. I, my congregation was very old. And sometimes I didn't want, there was one nursing home I liked, but there was one I didn't like to go to. But it was a discipline. And when you go to the nursing home, how many times do you wish you hadn't gone? You don't. If you go to visit sick people, it's hard sometimes, but you're so grateful that you did it. So I want to exhort all of you that when we, take the, the, when we put together retreats, it is your duty to come. I'm not asking you, I'm telling you to come. Do you understand this? Now somebody's going to say to me, is this law or grace? And I say, it's the law of grace. <laughs> You know, I'm not done with you yet. Okay, Matthew 9, verses 1 to 8. This is our text this morning for our time of studying God's Word. Matthew 9, verses 1 to 8. Sorry, it's not up there because I didn't give it to them in time. Um, the title of the sermon is, Your Sins Are Forgiven. Matthew 9, verses 1 to 8. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed and go home. And he got up and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. This is the Word of God. Now, this is one of the most famous stories in the Gospels. Um, and it appears in all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But here in this story, we lack the detail that would identify it to us. What's the detail that's missing in the Gospel of Matthew? The details that's missing is that this is actually the case where the man was let down through the roof. All right? So this is the guy whose friends excavated the roof and let him down on a stretcher into the middle of the room that was packed underneath. Okay? There are details of this story which aren't common to all three of the Gospels. And one of these details is this part having to do with the roof. There are other facts that aren't given in our text, but are given in other texts. Um, but, nevertheless, there are things that are in common. And I want to start with verse 1, and I want you to look at verse 1 and think, what, what is it saying here? It says, getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. Now, what was the city that Jesus was from? What was his hometown? His hometown was what? It was actually Nazareth, wasn't it? 
And yet, what city is he going to here? The city he's going to is Capernaum. Well, if you look back at Matthew 4, 12, and 13, don't bother turning, but I'll read it to you. It says, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so we know at this time that Jesus is making his home in a different place, in a shoreside fishing village on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is long and thin, and Jesus was up here in the northwest side in this town of Capernaum. Now, who was from Capernaum who's best known? Simon Peter was from Capernaum. In fact, we we think it's likely that this episode happens in the home that Jesus stayed in, which was Simon Peter's home. All right? And Simon Peter was a fisherman, and they're up there. This is also the place where Jesus healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Likely. That's what we think. Now, verse 2 tells us he's up there in this new home, his new adopted home, and... He's in this home, and it says, verse 2, that they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, I'm going to read from Mark 2, a parallel story, so that you get an idea of some of the other details. In Mark 2, we read, Many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. So people were packed into the home, okay? And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Now, I want to read the parallel from Luke chapter 5. It says, Some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him. So you can imagine this house is filled. You can't get near the door. And if we don't know, he might have been in the center in a courtyard, but probably it was a very small home. And so there would have been windows. And it's likely that they not only couldn't get through the door, but they probably couldn't even get close to the house. It's hard enough for one person to press through a crowd. But when there are four of you and you got a stretcher, you know, people aren't exactly going to start opening up and letting you in. And so it says... They were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of him. In other words, trying to set the paralytic down in front of Jesus, but not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd. They went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. The homes at that time often had exterior staircases up on the roof. And people often, when it was very hot, would sleep up on the roof. So the roof was an active part of the home. And so probably what they did was they weren't able to get in the door, but they were able to go to the stairway because, you know, the stairway, you couldn't have heard Jesus. They're able to go up on the roof and they know where he is. So they begin to hack at the roof and they begin to pull up the tiles or do whatever was required at the time to get through the roof. It says so many were gathered that there was no room left. Verse two. Now, what was Jesus doing inside? Well, if you listen to the text, you know that Jesus was speaking the Word of God to them. And so the reason people were gathered there was that Jesus was teaching and preaching to them. Now, most likely, the four friends of this paralyzed man, seeing the impossibility of breaking through the crowd as I said, went to the side, went up the side staircase, 
And then got to the top, and you can imagine the exertion it required for them to take a grown man on a stretcher. And we don't know what kind of a stretcher it was, but it certainly wasn't as stable as the stretchers we use today. And so they're climbing up a staircase, and the staircase didn't have zoning laws about how wide it was. Staircases weren't made for stretchers. So think about this. These guys are aggressive. These are men. These guys are going to get their friend up. So they're, and I imagine it looked at times as they went up the staircase like he was going to fall. There were times probably where a good half of his body was off the edge of the staircase. There were times where the left part of the bottom was maybe two feet lower than the right part of the top. But they get up on the roof and whatever is going through their minds, they must have decided that when they got to the roof, they were going to open up the roof. Now, that's pretty bodacious because it's not your home. Right? And generally, people don't want you messing with their roof. Yeah, thank you, dear brother. I hate to tell you, though, it's not going to help. This has been going on for weeks. <clears throat> But it helps me feel better, thanks. Um, so they're getting up on the roof, and they begin to do surgery to the roof. Now, imagine you're down in the room underneath, right? And you are the ones that, you know, got there early, you know, camped out all night for the Bob Dylan tickets, right? And so you're at the center of the room. You're right there next to Jesus. You can touch Him. You don't miss any words. Um, you're not straining to see Him. And all of a sudden... You hear banging, right? And then you hear it again. And, of course, your attention is now twisted between Jesus or what's going on up on the roof. And you think, somebody's trying to get through up there. And pretty soon, of course, there's like gravel and dust and stuff, and it starts coming down and people are going, you know, I mean, the whole scene's ruined, right? Finally, the roof opens, and what happens? Now, picture it. How much of that roof had to be opened? They're not letting down a guy that's, like, perfectly healthy, are they? They're letting down a stretcher. <laughs> you know, they had to do a major excavation of the roof. In fact, my guess is that probably something along a fifth of that roof was gone. I, I think it was a small room. And so this stretcher is let down, you know, Right? Well, what happens is the stretcher is let down. The thing you weren't going to grant them because of compassion, you're now going to grant them because of self-preservation, namely space with Jesus. You're not going to have the stretcher let down on top of you. So there's a wave that goes out from the center, like a pebble thrown into a, a lake, right? This stretcher's coming down. It's coming down. And so what you do is... Everybody starts to say, this is the center. Everybody's like, and then their wave goes out the front door, maybe out, the, uh, out into the kitchen, and room is made, and this man comes down, and he's, he's put on the ground. Now, where are the people that let him down? Well, they're not down there, because how can you let them down if they're down there? They're still up on the roof, right? So the guy comes down, this huge hole up there. Jesus, from the Gospel accounts we know, it says he saw their faith, plural, not his, their faith. So Jesus is checking out this dude that's on the floor, and he's also checking out the dudes that are up there. 
He's like up like this, up like this, up like this. Now, what do you think the men up on the roof looked like? I think they looked like determined men. Those men were bound and determined that they were going to get him in front of Jesus. Now, why? Why did they think they were taking him to Jesus? What was it that Jesus was doing? What does it say he was doing? Directly, explicitly. What did it say? It said he was, what? Speaking the Word of God to them. Okay? If you look back at the text, you'll see that Jesus says, seeing their faith in verse 2, and then you go on from Matthew over to I think it's Mark, verse 1, I mean verse 2 of Mark chapter 2. Many were gathered there, so there was no longer room, not even there. And he was what? He was speaking the word to them. Now, it's true. Every time Jesus did this, he was healing. But the specific thing he was doing at the time was speaking the word to them. And I want to ask you, were they taking this man to Jesus so that he could hear the word of God? You think I'm forcing you into a false question, right? I don't think so. I don't think they were taking him to hear the word of God. I think they were taking him to be healed. Okay, so Jesus is preaching and speaking the word of God to them. This guy gets let down. Jesus looks at him, looks at them. He knows what he's supposed to do. Now, if you go back in the Matthew account, what you'll find is that there are all kinds of miracles that Jesus has been doing. He's been doing miracles of healing. He's been near doing miracles of casting out demons. The Gadarene demoniac, the guy that's like going wacko in the cemetery. All right? And he's also been calming the storm. And so everything Jesus has been doing has shown two things. Number one, there's absolutely nothing in this earth he does not have power and authority over. Okay? Number two, he teaches and preaches as one with authority. So everything about Jesus is authority. They see his authority over nature, over storms, his authority over the body, his authority over the demons. All right? And what they say about his teaching is that when he teaches and preaches, he is not like their religious leaders because, why? He teaches, he preaches with authority. Now, let me ask you right there. Uh, did these men think Jesus had authority? Absolutely, because you do not bust up a roof unless you think that it's worth it. And what is worth it? Only the healing of the man you're busting that roof up for. Those men were absolutely convinced of Jesus' authority. Over what? Over the paralysis of their friend. That was the goal. The goal was to get him healed. Okay? So this is the scene. Jesus is speaking the word to them. They let him down. And I want you to note, this is not a healing service in which a few extemporaneous sharings and ejaculatory praise gods and ecstatic moaning and groaning keep the simpletons hanging on the edges of their seats waiting for the next wave of emotional hype to hit. And you think I'm being uncharitable, but come on, brothers and sisters, it's all over this world. It's all over Africa. It's all over everywhere where you have this 
this, this emotional hype. And like the point is not to be under the preaching and teaching of the Word. The point is to partake in this sort of mass exercise of, of, of emotion and, and I'm sorry, but mostly fake healings. Okay? That's not what's going on here. These men and women are in front of Jesus and Jesus is preaching and teaching. Okay? It's not a wacko thing with people falling down and people carting them off and all this other stuff. People aren't barking like dogs. They're not laughing like hyenas. There's not an emotional fixation. This is as calm as a place can be where you break apart the roof and let a guy down to be healed. (laughs) I mean, you get my point? It's very clear where the excitement is. It's the roof breaking up, not people falling all over the place and ranting and raving. It's the roof getting broken up. In other words, there is a point here. Now, from Luke, we know that there is a group present in that room that we're not told about in the other Gospels, namely, a group of Pharisees and teachers of the law. It says in Luke chapter 5, there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, why are they there? And we know from the context they were not there to encourage Jesus in his ministry. They were not there to feed from the word. They were there to find fault. And we know that because the minute Jesus opens his mouth, he, he is able to see their hearts and he knows they're finding fault with him. Jerusalem is 80 miles away. They're coming from 80 miles away to check out this man who threatens their position of authority. And they're there to get him. Don't ever think that Jesus was just loved. He wasn't. They were plotting almost from the beginning to kill him. Okay? So the room is still as the crowd listens intently to Jesus preaching the Word of God. All of a sudden, noise is heard. There's a banging on the tiles above. After a few minutes, the tiles begin to be lifted away and the distraction is complete. It's hard to listen to the preaching when four zealous men, manly men, are busy making a hole in the roof above their heads. Everybody pulls backward as those at the center of the room get out of the way of the descending stretcher. And then he comes down and everybody's sitting there thinking, what is Jesus going to do? Now, think of the man. The man's lying on the stretcher. The man's thinking, what is Jesus going to do? This is one of those moments where for this man, his whole life passed in front of his eyes. Why? There's only one thing that man wanted. That man wanted to be healed. All right, and he knew that his fate was his fate was hanging there as he came down. He was either going to get up and walk, or his hope was going to be dashed. All right. Now look at verse two. Look at it carefully. Jesus said to him, Take courage, son. Stand up and walk. Now, did you look at your Bible? What does the text say? The text does not say what I just said. Jesus did not look at the paralytic and say, Take courage, son. Stand up and walk. 
What Jesus said to him was, Take courage, son, what? Your sins are forgiven. Let's imagine this morning that one of you had a paralyzed relative and that you brought that relative to this church and that four of you carried him on a stretcher up here to the front and so as he started coming up front, you all stand up because you want to see the person in front of you stood up, right? And you're craning, you're looking, trying to figure out what's going on. There's a guy, he can't move, he's on a stretcher right here in the front and for lack of someone better, I'm here, right? Okay? And all of a sudden you hear me say to him, your sins are forgiven. What would you say in your mind, in your heart, if I did that? What would you say? No, you wouldn't say that. I don't think so. Lucas says I'd say, he'd say, you don't have the right to do that. I think the first thing you'd think is what? I think you'd all be ticked at me. How dare you connect his sins with his paralysis? That's what I think you'd say. I think you'd think, you jerk. Here this man is on a stretcher and you're pointing to his sins? You don't know. You don't know that man's sick. You don't know he's in a stretcher because he sinned. He's already at a stretcher. Do you have to add to it by pointing out that he's a sinner? Help him! And implicit in that is your thought that forgiving his sins doesn't help him. Because what? Because we're all materialists. Because none of us were concerned about Terry's soul, Terry Shivo. Just help her. Give her food and water. Doesn't need her sins forgiven. And then when she died, everybody's saying, thank God she's in a better place. And how do you know that? You see, we're all materialists, and we all think that what's really needed in this life is for the, par- per- for the man that's paralyzed to be able to stand up and walk. But Jesus said to us what? He said what he really needed was what? He needed his sins forgiven. 